Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to The Reset, a mental health podcast without all the bollocks. I'm Sam Delaney. Recently, my daughter fell ill at school and I had to go in and pick her up. Because schools are obsessed with their attendance stats, she was told in no uncertain terms that she was expected to be back and ready to learn the very next morning. Only a doctor's note confirming something really serious would be considered an acceptable excuse. Well... She wasn't dying and she hadn't lost a limb or anything, but she had taken a serious turn for the worse at school and I could see that she needed to recover properly. So I told her she would stay at home for a couple of extra days, rest on the sofa, and I would deal with the school. Despite her condition, she initially wanted to go back because she was so worried about getting into trouble for unsanctioned absence. This is the world we live in. We've been conditioned by schools, work, government and other institutions to disregard the importance of proper rest and recovery after we've been ill. We've almost forgotten how to do it. I spent years commuting in and out of jobs on crowded trains with a horrible cold, medicating myself with double MSIPs just to get through the day because I wanted to demonstrate resilience and work ethic. Well, screw resilience and screw work ethic too. Nothing's more important than keeping your own body and mind fit and healthy. This is one of the reasons I was so delighted to welcome on this week's guest, Dr. Gavin Francis, author of a fantastic book called Recovery, The Lost Art of Convalescence. In it, he draws upon 20 years experience as a GP to outline how powerful proper convalescence is. What a miracle cure rest can be if we learn to do it properly. Anyway, I'll let Gavin explain more. I really enjoyed this one. I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. Dr. Gavin Francis, welcome to The Reset. Thanks for having me along. Uh, the Lost Art of Convalescence. What an appealing title. What motivated you to write it? Well, I'm a GP in Edinburgh and I work a little bit um, for the emergency service as a GP and also a little bit in the highlands and islands of Scotland. And I've had a really kind of hectic pandemic, as you might imagine. Mm. Very, very busy in my day job. And um I've written a few books before about travel and about medicine, and it just struck me that I've spent so much time in the last two years talking to my patients about 
recovery, not just from COVID, but also from the damaging effects of all the lockdowns, um, from physical and from mental health. And I realized so many of my patients actually, they they were surprised by things that I take for granted, little bits of advice that you will have come across if you've read that book. Mm. And so I just decided to put all those pieces of advice, all those reflections and explorations and gleanings from 20 odd years medical practice in one place, one short kind of accessible book. Talk about how culturally we're, we're, you know, a lot of us are just conditioned to think of the, a sort of a transactional relationship with, with doctors and, and, mm. and um, you know, we kind of think, well, I'm ill, so give me some medicine and then mm-hmm. I will get better. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, we've, so as a result, we all have lost sight of the fact, or we might even think it's a cop out sometimes if people tell us to rest as opposed to just giving us a pill. Um, yeah. Is that part of the problem just being culturally conditioned to sort of ignore the power of, of rest and convalescence? Yeah, and I think it's not just about rest as well. I mean, convalescence, the word itself means to grow in strength. So it's like, uh, it's about recovery in the fullest sense. And sometimes you need activity for that. And sometimes you need rest. And it's about listening to your body, really. I think um, something happened through the 1950s and the 1960s as we started to get more and more powerful and effective drugs. Do you know the roll call of drugs that started to come out year by year through those two decades is just extraordinary. Mm. And um, and I don't want to practice medicine without them. You know, I'm in no way trying to say that we need to go back to the old days, not at all. But I think as we got better and better drugs, more and more effective drugs, people started to think that that was all you needed. Mm. And um, the older ideas about rest and activity, about nutrition, um, about the, the way you approach the process emotionally, mentally, all those kinds of older ideas just got jettisoned. And so by the time I was training in medicine through the 90s, the words recovery or the words convalescence weren't even mentioned. You know, they weren't even in the medical textbooks. But then when I became a GP, I realized there were a huge part of medicine was encouraging and guiding people through that process. And if someone comes to you for instance with suffering from anxiety or, or depression obviously mm. we know there are medicines available f- for that mm-hmm. but um it, you know is is the first sort of piece of advice to do with this idea of of convalescence and recovery um well i think if somebody i mean if you use the example of anxiety if somebody was to come to see me complaining of paralyzing bouts of anxiety or panic attacks, Mm. the first thing I would do would just be to chat to them about what they felt like, what the triggers were, what was going on in their life, their professional life, their personal life, why this has come now. And we would would open up a conversation about whether this is a long-standing problem or a new problem, whether there was triggers that were easily avoidable or whether... These, there was no particular triggers and this was going to be a problem that would continue for a long, long time. And only then, once I'd got a sense of what this anxiety problem really was, would I move on to how we're going to manage it. You know, somebody who's paralyzed with anxiety, but it's actually just um, their wife's just left them, they're about to move house and they've gone bankrupt. Mm. Do you know, the reasons for that anxiety um, are obvious to anybody and so we'd have to 
have a conversation about how we're going to approach and deal with those triggers. Whereas somebody comes along and says, look, my life's very easy just now. I've never actually been happier or more content in some ways, but I'm just getting this panicky feeling all the time. Then I'm going to approach it in quite a different way. And to be honest, um, I wouldn't really open the conversation about drugs until the second or the third time that I met that individual. Um, I, would, I certainly wouldn't reach for the prescription pad as a very first port of call. Uh, we know that, you know, doctors, GPs, the NHS is very overstretched, though. So, mm. you know, it, it can be difficult, I guess, to yeah. you know give patients the amount of time that, that you clearly endeavour to give them. I often mm-hmm. think that must be a big problem for, for doctors. Is, is, oh, yeah, hugely. You no, know, especially with matters that are sort of um, maybe more mental, emotional than than physical, that a lot of discussion might be what's what's required, but you don't have always the time or the energy to, to deliver that level of discussion. Yeah. Or maybe, as you say, your training isn't, you know, not everyone is, is, is sort of a, is used to those discussions. Mm. Well, um, certainly we, um, as GPs, we're not really counsellors. You know, we're not mm. trained as counsellors. Some, if somebody needs a counsellor, they need a counsellor. And, uh, and I'm always clear with people that, that what I offer is a sort of confidential space um, short bursts of appointments, you know, 10 minutes is what it says in the book. They often stretch out to nearer 20 if it's a complicated mm. problem, but they can't really go much beyond that. Unlike a counselor or a psychotherapist who might have a whole hour. Mm. And so it's normal for me to, um, to, to just get an appraisal of the situation and talk about what I have to offer and say, Look, I think in your situation, counseling might help. I think you need to see a counselor and here's a list of local counselors. Um, it's not something that's offered by the NHS in my um, region. Or somebody might, it might be really obvious that somebody's got quite a deep psychiatric problem. And I think once I've tried the, the, the usual kind of medications for that, that help quieten down the symptoms of that problem, if they're not working, then they need to see a psychiatrist. So every situation is different, really, depending on what the, the different triggers are that have brought that person to my door. Is it common that people feel sort of ashamed or embarrassed? Because I speak to a lot of men on this podcast, and I know it's my own experience. The first the first time, a long time ago, I ever went to see my GP, who was very mm. helpful as it as it transpired. But on, when I made the appointment and went along, I thought, oh, I'm wasting this doctor's time mm. uh, because I, I felt anxious. Um, I felt I might be depressed. Um, I was really struggling. But there was nothing I could actually report to the doctor that I felt that I felt at that time kind of justified the way I was feeling. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of men that, you know, women, too, I'm sure this is sort of chiefly aimed at men, mm. this podcast feel like, oh, God, what have I, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, it might be I've got you know, I'm married, I've got a good job, I've got kids, I've got a house. What am I moaning about? Why have I failed? Mm. Why can't I handle it? Is, is that common? Yeah, hugely common. And- do you know, I'm the only male doctor in my practice. I've got three female colleagues. And so a lot of um, men do tend to come to me. Somehow they feel more comfortable speaking to another man about that kind of issue. And it's a real recurrent thing I see again, 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 with um, quite successful, professional, middle-class men approaching middle age mm-hmm. um, who are 
doing really well often in their chosen profession, but somehow it's all becoming too much. The responsibilities are all becoming too much. And I'm always delighted when they do actually come and speak to me about it because, you know, as, as you just pointed out, there's so many cultural barriers for a lot of men to even acknowledge, concede that they've got a problem. Um, and what tends to happen, actually, just because of the way men are, is um, I'll meet them maybe once a fortnight, once a week, even if it's very severe, um, the problems they're having uh, for a while. And they'll continue to engage with that until until the worst of the crisis has passed. And then they'll just immediately switch to, oh, I'm totally fine now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They don't, I've been they, down that route, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I don't need to speak to you anymore, Doc. No, no, I'm fine. Just keep going with the drugs. Mm. Um, and I think that's really interesting. You know, we talk a lot in our society with very good reason about the, the deep-seated structural uh, problems with having a kind of patriarchal setup and that men are advantaged in so many ways. But one of the flip sides of that, which I see uniquely in this kind of job that I'm talking about, is when um, men, some men feel completely unable to open up to any kind of vulnerability because the rest of the culture is telling them that they've got all the advantages and they're doing really well and they need to be successful and um, even... Um, demonstrate a kind of proficiency and professionalism at all times and, and, and that stops them from acknowledging um, any kind of vulnerability which is a real shame um, That's fascinating and, and it is my experience and, it, and I also think that you know I don't know how common it is but it's sort of like you, when you say oh you get better and then think I'm fine now Doc. I, I went down that route I sort of feel like I needed three recoveries until it sort of um, actually caught on with me you know, mm. you need to go through this process a few times before you realise, oh, no, this needs to be a full-time mm. occupation now. And I was, mm. uh, and that's what I was going to ask you a lot about prevention rather than cure, because mm. someone like me and a lot of the people who've come on this podcast, very often they've hit a big crisis that has motivated them to sort of reassess their life and their priorities and perhaps put, you know... Um, rest and recuperation and just their mental health and self-care at the center of their lives because for many mm. years we don't and we put work at the center of our lives mm. what i would like is for my kids to grow up in a way where they don't have to hit that crisis in order to learn those lessons mm -hmm. um are we set up as a society are is the nhs set up are we are we set up to sort of try and stave these things off because it strikes me that most of us only wake up to this stuff once we've hit a bad crisis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I agree entirely. I don't think we're set up for it at all. It's extremely unusual to meet um, men that will, once they have a family, that will deliberately choose, for example, to work part-time mm. so that they can spend more time with their kids. And so you've got this really odd tension set up within the dynamics of many homes whereby, uh, you know, we're in the 21st century, we want to have far more um, equitable um, roles within the family, and that's as it should be. But loads of guys still feel that they need to be the ones that are um, working the lion's share and doing all the full-time work. Mm -hmm. And it has to be said, you know, it's... Um, it's only within the past few years, really. I mean, it's it's less than a decade, isn't it, that that men have been able to access the same kind of parental leave as women. So it's going to be a slow process, I think. Um, 
but I would love more men to work part-time and fully share the whole equitable roles of, of um, being at home with their kids all the way through, not just at the beginning when their babies are very, very small, but all the way through, through primary school and so on too. It's just, it's still very, very unusual. Um, there's a line in your book in the chapter of permission to recover. It says self-compassion is a much underrated virtue and the rhythms of mm. modern life are often antithetical to those of recovery, mm. which I thought was a really beautifully phrased, powerful line. Um, and, and you know, it, it made me think, how much is kind of 21st century capitalism at the heart of a lot of our sort of travails here? Mm. Well, I think there's probably two things to say about it. One is um, that, there's no doubt that that kind of society gives us an ethic of the fact that your your worth is in your work. So if you can't work, then you're worthless as a human being. And that, even though people don't articulate that explicitly, it still sort of bleeds through and seeps through into the way that they think about things. And so that's one way. Um, the other way is that actually that kind of attitude to work can just make you ill. Do you know, I use the example in the book of um, certain kinds of call centres and, do you know, it's shown now that certain kinds of call centre environments have got a turnover of staff 75% higher than comparable office environments just because they're so stressful and difficult. And because if there's any kind of um, economic downturn, people are so desperate for the work, they're, be able, they're, they're willing to put up with really quite difficult um working um, environments and so both the capitalism drives us this idea that that we have to work to be worthwhile human beings but it also drives a lot of illness itself hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little so naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Particularly mental illness. And that is, even if you are a sort of a, a committed free market capitalist who believes in economic, relentless economic growth, uh, that is costing the country something in economic terms as well, isn't it? Because of the amount of people who just can't work because they're so quickly driven into a state of ill health by by these sorts of jobs that seem so prevalent now. Yeah, no, it's it's true. You know, I, in the book I quote this, there's a wonderful... Um, there's a wonderful essay by the philosopher Bertrand Russell in the mm. 1930s when he sets out to say, said, look, we have machines now. We have the opportunity to have plenty for all and work 
a moderate amount. Everybody could work a moderate amount and we would still have the same total national wealth. But instead, we've seemed to have chosen to have fabulous wealth for some and the daily grind for the majority. So we've we've been really, the way we've constructed our society is, hasn't been particularly wise in terms of how we can make the best use of all this technology and mechanization that's available to us. I read that quote. I thought it was fantastic. And I thought, um, I thought bloody hell, he was right then. And that was before we even invented computers and apps. Yeah. <laughs> that was just machines. I yeah. mean, it, it, now we have more machines and computers and apps. And of course, there are there is a sort of a growing movement of people in the world who, who are suggesting that, you know, there can be a universal, there, there is a way of us having a universal minimum wage and for mm-hmm. robots to effectively pay taxes and for that set up to come about. And, and clearly, having read your book, I'm sort of thinking, well, we need that because there is, uh, you know, particularly in, in the West, I guess, or maybe it's prevalent everywhere, I don't know, you know, this, this crisis in mental health, it appears. Um, mm-hmm. But let's talk about some positive things. I really enjoyed mm-hmm. reading about the emphasis. You did a whole, you do a whole chapter devoted to travel mm. and, and how, important that can be for your health yeah i think it's a very um ancient idea as well you know i'm convinced that a lot of the 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 medieval pilgrimages that people used to undertake when they weren't well it was part it was it was to a huge extent the journey that they undertook that really helped them the change of circumstances the jolting out of um unhelpful rhythms the 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 idea of having a kind of spiritual goal of doing the pilgrimage became a, a, a healthful goal. It, it, just the journey itself and the, the change in circumstances itself was a benefit too, not to mention the massive um, placebo effect of going to see some um, spiritual or magical object about which you've already heard so many mm. testimonials of cure. You know, I've had patients going off to Lourdes and similar places who felt so much better coming back. Mm. And I don't poo-poo that at all. You know, I'm delighted if um, somebody goes on a pilgrimage and feels better. But there's many kinds of pilgrimages, you know, sometimes it's just a holiday. Sometimes it's managing to go and see your grandchildren. Sometimes it's doing something, going somewhere that you've always wanted to go. Sometimes it might be going to a place where you grew up and seeing that again. But but journeys can be a really helpful way of jolting us out of unhelpful um, habits of mind that we've got into. Mm. Yeah, you say just the, the change of scene. Mm-hmm. is Well, it's like the cliche, isn't it? It's a, a change is as good as a rest. And um Yeah, and I think that's definitely, um, it's borne out in all sorts of ways. You know, there's lovely kind of examples of that crop up in the likes of even Charles Darwin talks about how um, different plants do better if you move them around a bit and expose them to different environments. And I think it's a kind of basic factor of life. You go right back to the ancient Greek and Latin texts, they said exactly the same. They said exactly, basically, changes as good as the rest. And you also devote a chapter to nature, which is something that, you know, I'm increasingly enthusiastic about and has a a really positive effect on my own mental health. Tell us a bit about Mm. that. Well, I think it's really interesting that a lot of the time we consider that drugs are what do the curing of our bodies, but actually our bodies do most of the curing. You know, I've got a friend that works in intensive care, And uh, she once pointed out to me that in intensive care, all they do is support the body systems, the breathing, the pulse, the blood pressure, and while the body gets on and does the rest of it. And I would like to restore this idea that the body is part of nature, because it is, you know, your heart beating is no less a part of nature than the the daffodils pushing up in the spring. And sometimes um, we have to 
be aware of the fact that that just like a gardener, for example, has to make sure that the soil is not too wet and not too dry, not too warm, not too cold, not too acid, not too alkaline. All these ideas of balance that gardeners have are actually really good ways of looking at the body as well. And they used to be the way that we looked at the body for thousands of years before um, modern medicine. So, yeah, I just wanted to restore that idea that nature is really, really powerful and that we can still tap into that. We don't need to rely just on medicine in foil wrap blister packs. If we're not ill, ill enough to go to a doctor, but we do want to practice self-compassion and self-care to and live our lives in a way that will stave off, you know, illness and and bad times. Mm-hmm. How, how can how can we do that? You know, I I am a huge advocate of rest. I'm a convert to sort of self care and self-compassion as much as I can be but I'm also aware that I'm in a privileged position um, in terms of where my life is at Mm -hmm. I'm 46 I've worked for a long time I've managed to sort of uh, at this point in my life forge a career that allows me to sort of earn a living whilst also building time for myself Mm -hmm. and my family that once upon a time wasn't possible for me and I'm really aware when I when I write and podcast this stuff, that a lot of my listeners will think, well, that, that's all, all very well for you to say, because, of course, uh, you know, as you say in the book, you've worked in very impoverished areas where people mm-hmm. are, are, are struggling and, and they do have to take jobs that simply do not allow for, they mm-hmm. don't allow uh, space for you to take care of yourself. So how, what advice do you give to patients in those circumstances and and, and how can we fix that conundrum for people who just their reality doesn't allow for that sort of stuff? Mm. Yeah. I mean, there's different ways about it. You know, I do one, one day a week, I work in a practice in Edinburgh that's for homeless people. And um, the, there has come up again and again, this question of if you're um, so socially and economically disadvantaged, how do you access this kind of, stuff that's considered very kind of middle class, like going to, um, you know, nice resorts or, or going to, to beautiful, unspoiled areas of countryside. But, you know, again, again, it's been shown that if you make the, um, if you create the opportunities there um, for people to access the, the resources that they've got around them, they can, anybody can benefit from these kinds of perspectives. So, for example, there's lots of, you know, there's botanical gardens in Edinburgh um, near this practice where I work. There's beautiful parks and there's recently been starting to look into to guided walks whereby one of the nurses at that practice actually takes guided walks for some of the guys, the homeless guys, so they can access that same kind of approach to healing and to nature as anybody else could. I think it's often, um, it's about when, when you're priority, when you're struggling so much and wondering where your next meal is coming from, of course, um, it's very difficult to think more broadly than that, to, to widen your horizons. And that's why um, people in that situation often do need the, the voluntary sector, charitable sector, different kinds of organizations, and the signposting of GPs like me to remind them that stuff like this is important. But I hope and I do see in my daily work that there is access for everybody at all sections of society to be able to think about nature and about their health in these kinds of ways. And um, it just needs to become more part of the 
um, national conversation, I think, rather than just assuming that what everybody needs is just the correct prescription. Yeah, I think culturally, you know, I guess normalising the conversation is a bit like the one we're having. Mm. You know, I remember once upon a time, my younger self feeling full of, you know, really full with worry and panic about every aspect of my life. And when people would say things to me, like whatever it might have been at the time, the classic is if you tried meditation or mm. focus on breathing or make a list of positive things or any of these things. At the mm. time, I would always think to myself, listen, I've got a bill, I've got a tax bill or a mm. gas bill, whatever it is, and that needs paying. And I'm getting letters every yeah. day and I cannot begin to think about this stuff. And I just thought it was yeah. so alien. And similarly, the idea of going for a walk in the park as opposed to just going to the pub and having mm. a few pints with my mates and just not thinking about stuff for a few hours it, it just mm-hmm. seemed more me and, and I'm not like that anymore. And I, and I do em, embrace, you know, a completely different lifestyle, mm-hmm. but it, it, it is hard. It took me years and years and hitting a crisis to, mm-hmm. to have the motivation to jump out of those old habits and into these new ones. Um, so, well, I think, I think yeah, sorry, you finish. No, no, I have finished really. All right. Well, um, I just, it raises one of these, um, one of the themes of this book, which is that a lot of people kind of expect doctors to, all different kinds of doctors to be the same. And they expect often and wrongly doctors to treat every patient the same. But, do you know, I think one of the marks of a really good doctor or nurse is um, somebody who can intuit very quickly in the space of a short encounter what kind of clinician that person needs and sure if you're in the middle of a major crisis and you're bankrupt and you can't pay your bills and your house might be repossessed then for me to just sit there and blandly tell you that you should try mindfulness meditation would be to do you a disservice you know i need you've the, the clinician that you speak to has got to take your personal circumstances into account and got to do a little bit of work to, to find out where you're at and what is going to be helpful to you. And in that situation, yeah, probably starting the conversation with, well, what maybe what we need to do is limit the amount you're spending in the pub and work out how you're going to make time in your day to just have a 35-minute walk in the park before you go to X, Y, or Z, not to leap straight into telling you, well, what you need to do is um, adopt some kind of meditation practice. And um, and it's baby steps, you know, different things works for different people. And, and that's how I hope somebody would be able to begin to open up that conversation with you when you were in that situation. Well, clearly your patients are very lucky to have a doctor who, who's, who sees things the way that you do and, you know, a lot of it uh, seems to have been stuff that you have picked up during your 20, 20 years as a GP. Um, mm. But as you say, you know, not everyone's trained in this stuff. Is that something you would like to see changed in, in the way in which GPs are trained? Um, yes, in a way. What I would like to see is um, I would like us to have more time, of course, because mm. this stuff takes time. And I would like... Um, GP trainees to be encouraged to act a little bit more on their instinct and on their intuition, not to feel as if they have to be some sort of grey representative of the medical establishment, that they can actually allow a little bit of their own humanity and their own personal responses to somebody's situation in. 
Um, and, and when you start, I think that, that comes with experience. So it's hard to tell somebody who's straight out of medical school just to trust their instincts. Um, yeah. They have to have a few years of experience behind them. But, but I would like the profession as a whole to, to, to embrace a bit more this idea of, um, of trusting experienced doctors' professionalism and intuition. Yeah. Um, and hopefully there's some more money spent on providing therapists and counsellors for people. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, we, need a, we need a real rebalancing. If so many politicians tell us that they do believe that mental and physical health have um, and should be accorded equal respect, but the numbers are there in terms of the funding and um, the funding for any kind of community follow-up, the funding for mental health services is really dire right now in comparison to the funding that you can see lavished on, for example, oncology units or on cardiology units. And so I really would like, I don't want to see oncology units and cardiology units starved of cash, but I would just like to see um, us have a modest amount of, of perspective on this and just see how much suffering are these different kinds of problems causing in our communities? And let's try and put the money where the most suffering is happening. Um, that would be, make my job easier. When you talk about cardiology and oncology departments, so obviously that's about literally preventing people from dying. Mm-hmm. And it feels like sometimes, you know, culturally uh, and, and politically, we, we focus so much on preventing death as opposed to improving life. Yeah. No, very much. And and every um, every health board has got to decide where it's going to put its emphasis. But, you know, you can argue absolutely that we're right to just spend all our resources on preventing death. Mm. But, you know, everybody's going to die eventually. Yeah, I always <laughs> think that. I mean, listen, the mortality rate is 100%. <laughs> yeah, I, think, uh, I might think differently if I get a terminal illness tomorrow. But uh-huh. I often think we, we're going to die. Whereas I, I think, but whilst we were alive, it'd be really nice if there was yeah, ways so I'm not helping us live better. Yes, I don't want to cut funding from any of these, of course. And I'm very, I'm delighted about all the life-saving chemotherapies and um, bypass surgeries and so on that so many of my patients have had. But I'm also, there's an extraordinary amount of suffering out there in our communities, which is yeah. chronic, which has got its roots in childhood and deprivation, and which there's really almost no services available for us to tackle. So I would like a bit of a rebalancing. Uh, Dr. Gavin Francis, it's a real pleasure talking to you and, and a real pleasure reading this wonderful book, Recovery, The Lost Art of Convalescence. And, and thank you for all of your wisdom today. So um, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Sam. There you go, Dr. Gavin Francis with some delightful and thought-provoking wisdom on how we all need to take better care of ourselves. I can massively recommend his book. It's beautifully written. It's quite slim too, the sort of thing you can consume in one sitting but come away from feeling twice as smart. It's called Recovery, The Lost Art of Convalescence and I will add it to the Reset book list which you can find at bookshop.org. Please remember to subscribe to the Reset newsletter if you don't already. It's free and you can find it at Sam Delaney. .substack.com. Also check me out on Instagram at the Reset Sam. Until next time gang, thanks for listening. Be lucky and don't let the dickheads get you down. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags and so much more 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 